All right now, for the benefit of those who haven't been with us, or if you're new, or if you're a visitor, we've been following the life of David in the Bible, and we've been looking at David mainly through the prism of his relationships with other people, David and Goliath, David and Jonathan will come to, I think, next week, and so on. And last Sunday, we began to look at his relationship with Saul, who is the king who preceded him to the throne of Israel. And we saw that Saul, with his head and shoulders profile, he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in the country, we saw that that reflected in many ways a kind of church life that we have seen in decline in our country in the last few decades. A church life that is about self-reliance and democracy and management techniques and human wisdom and a steady drift away from the authority of Scripture. And David, by contrast, was a man not ruled by his head but by his heart. And David mirrors the kind of church life that always flourishes. So a church life that is about the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God in worship and reverence for God's word. That's David. And we saw that the crowd chose Saul for his impressive looks, but God chose David for his impassioned heart. Well, last week we viewed David's relationship with Saul, mostly from Saul's perspective. And you can listen in on the podcast if you missed that and you want to hear more. But today we're going to be looking at this relationship more from David's point of view. The very first time that the two men are mentioned together in the Bible is in 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23. Now, this immediately follows David's secret anointing by Samuel, and it immediately precedes his encounter with Goliath. So that's where we are in time. Well, let's pray, and then we'll read what it says. Lord our God, we thank you so much for the purity and the power and the potential to transform of your holy word. And now, Lord, as we come to consider it again and read it, we pray that it would read us. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. We pray, Lord, that we would be changed having encountered you through your word this morning because we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. It says this, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre, like a harp, stringed instrument. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So David said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. And listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord had departed for Saul, from Saul, but as for David, the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. 
So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Oh, hang on a minute. Rewind the tape. Did I read that correctly? An evil spirit from God. Is that a printing error in my Bible? We might expect an evil spirit from Satan, but surely not from God. But God's word insists here four times, in fact, that this was from the Lord. And there are a few rare and exceptional instances in the Bible where God permits the demonic to bring affliction in the short term in order to bring about his good purposes in the long term. The entire book of Job is an example of this. Uh, In the New Testament, there are occasions where Paul occasionally, using his uh, apostolic authority, just two times in fact, he hands over to Satan a Christian who has gone dangerously off track. And he does that in order not to spitefully seek revenge, but to provoke a spiritual U-turn. It's like a wake-up call from God. Now, this evil spirit sent from God is here, is, 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 has been sent by God to grab Saul by the lapels and show him that he's got to urgently turn things around and start to take his spiritual leadership seriously. It is, for him, a wake-up call. Now, there are two features in David's character that I want to highlight from this passage I just read. And the first one is that he was anointed to be a worshipper. Half of the 150 Psalms in the Bible were written by David. And every one of those Psalms, 75 of them from his pen, are a prayer from his heart expressing his feelings to God. His joy and his delight on some occasions. Sometimes his confidence. At other times his yearnings, what he's longing for. He writes down about his dismay. He talks about his fears. He talks about his sorrows. The Washington DC pastor Mark Batterson says this, the Holy Spirit cannot fill you if you are full of yourself. And Saul was full of himself. He was obsessed about his image, as we saw last week. But David was full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit. In his Psalms, you get every emotion from his heart. It's all there. And it's all a testimony to his everyday, every hour relationship with God, which is at the center of his life. And all those Psalms were set to music, of course. And David sang them. He sang them to God as he played his stringed instrument. And it says here in verse 17 that he played it well and God was with him. That's what you want in your worship band, isn't it? 
<laughs> you want people who can play competently, of course, and we're blessed to have musicians who can play competently, but also who are spiritually in tune as well. Thank God for our worship band here. You may or may not be part of a, a worship band, but have you got a heart for God when you come to worship? Does the Lord get your whole heart when you sing to him? Even if you cannot sing in tune, God doesn't mind. God looks at your heart. Secondly, in verse 18 here, it says that David was anointed to be a warrior. And we saw um, two weeks ago uh, with Goliath that David was a pretty good warrior. And all the way through first and the beginning of second Samuel, David is quite busy smiting Philistines and Amalekites and Ammonites and Moabites and all the other ites, Hivites, Jebusites, the whole lot. He, any other arch enemy of God, David was fearless in battle. And as I said last week, our warfare as Christians is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against principalities and powers. And living as a Christian is a constant battle. It's where, have you noticed it's a constant battle. We battle against indifference. We battle against cynicism and unbelief, even in ourselves. Greed, prayerlessness, fears, worries, anxieties, lusts, lies, laziness, temptations of every kind. It's relentless, the battle that we are in. First Peter 2.11 says that sinful desires wage war against your soul and mine. It wages war. It's carnage out there. But we can live in victory by the grace of God. Well, David was a fighter. Uh, do people, do you think people would say that of you? They're a real fighter. They're a real warrior. Spiritual warfare, they're on it. Are you conscious of living in a lifelong spiritual battle? Because if you're a Christian, then you are. That's your reality. Did you know that the weapons of our spiritual warfare are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. The Bible says that. Did you know that the Bible promises that God will soon crush Satan under our feet? Because he will. The Bible says it. Do you put the armor of God on every day? David was a worshiper and he was a warrior. And it says here that Saul liked him very much, in fact, at first. But all that, my friends, is about to change. Saul's greatest weakness was that he could not stand other people succeeding around him. People started to sing songs soon after David's victory over Goliath, comparing David's great success to Saul's more modest success on the battlefield. And because Saul was so insecure about this, he became anxious, he became moody and jealous, even paranoid. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, twice Saul suddenly lashes out at David, throwing a spear at him, trying to pin him to the wall. And twice David dodges out of harm's way. In chapter 19, it happens a third time. Talk about working for a boss with anger management issues. Uh, that's Saul. David eludes him again the third time. And then uh, later on in that chapter 19, 
Saul attempts to murder David in his bed. But David's wife, Michal, gets wind of the plan and helps him make good his escape. Saul then sends out men three times to pursue him before going with them himself. But God frustrates the plot every time. And then in chapters 21 to 31, 11 chapters, David is constantly on the run. He is in hiding from Saul, who becomes more and more determined to track him down with his troops and kill him. It's 11 chapters of unrelenting persecution. David has to flee to the desert, and he has to hide in caves and in inhospitable places, dry places. And even here, years on, at absolute rock bottom, David turns to God, and he pours out his soul. I think many of the Psalms we read must have been written in those days of peril and danger. Psalm 4, for example, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Or Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's got 3,000 men trying to track him down. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. And then Psalm 63, it's subtitled, When He Was in the Desert of Judas. We know it's from this time. He said, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You know, when life is really hard, when people are not fair, when circumstances are bewildering, when God seems absolutely silent in your life, do you bring it to God? Do you bring it to him? Do you tell him what you think? Do you tell him how you feel? you pour it all out to him like David did? Well, it's about this time when he's on the run, hiding in caves, that men begin to join David, it says. Now, isn't it encouraging when the Lord brings people around you when you most need it? Uh, well, that's what happens to David. And it says in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, it says this. It says, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him and he became their leader. And I'm going to come back to that towards the end because I think that is very significant. In chapter 24, there is a pivotal moment when Saul is pursuing David with an army of 3,000 men. And David and the men loyal to him are hiding a long way back in this cave. And Saul goes into that very cave to relieve himself, not knowing, of course, that anybody's watching. And how embarrassing would it be if he knew there were people there? And while Saul is responding to nature's call, some of David's guys whisper to him, this is your moment. Look, 
is a sitting duck. Go on. You can kill this maniac now and the throne will be yours. And so David creeps forward with his dagger as Saul uh, is, has his back turned to him and he takes this dagger from his sheath and uh, he, he inches towards Saul. And instead of plunging this blade into Saul's heart as he's urged to do, David just cuts off a square of the corner of his robe. And when Saul's left, David goes to the entrance of the cage and he calls out to him, verse 9, holding up this piece of silken robe. And David shouts out, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? Here's the proof. This day, he says, you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. He says, some, have, some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. And I want you to notice this, the tremendous respect and honor in which David holds and values God's anointing. David had every reason to feel hatred, to feel bitterness. He had every justification in self-defense to plunge that dagger into the heart of a man determined to kill him. Everything that was happening to David was so unfair. It was so wrong to him. But when God looked into David's heart, he saw mercy. He saw graciousness. He saw forgiveness. He saw a a beautiful foreshadowing of David's greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son he loves, full of mercy. It says in 1 Peter 2, 23, when they hurled their insults at him, Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Well, in 1 Samuel 26, it happens again. Saul, once more after this, becomes consumed with jealousy again. He gathers his 3,000 guys and off they go again to hunt David down like a dog. And this time, when Saul and his men are asleep at night, David takes a guy called Abishai, and they creep into the camp unnoticed. And they stand right over Saul. He's got this huge spear that's uh, thrust into the ground right by Saul's head. And knowing that David was unwilling because of his heart to kill Saul before, Abishai whispers to David, Let me pin him to the ground. I'll kill him instantly, and all this will be over. And again, David feels that he would be complicit. He says, no, the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Sometimes the most difficult decisions that we make in life are the ones that we make under pressure of the greatest temptation. But they are the ones that God honors us most for. David is determined, whatever the cost, to put the Lord first in his life. Even if in the short term, that might mean more pain, more misunderstanding, more persecution, more being wronged. And I just feel there might be people here this morning who are struggling with a big decision. 
and you know the easy choice. You know what it is. You know it will make life simpler for you. You know the right choice carries a cost. But in the longer term, I want to encourage you to have faith that the Lord will bring honor to you and blessing on your life if you take the right but the more difficult path. Just felt that as I was preparing. So once again, David spares Saul. He retreats with Saul's spear and his water jug. And then from a distance, he shows him both the evidence that he could have killed him, but he didn't. And once again, Saul crumbles and admits he's been an absolute fool and that David is more righteous than he is and that the Lord is with him and that in the end, David is going to prevail. David is a leader. He leads through his godly character, as we've seen, his worshipping heart, his warrior spirit, and his moral courage. But supremely, David is a leader because people want to follow him. Now, the Silicon Valley church leader, John Ortberg, says this, He that say he leadeth when nobody followeth, only taketh a walk. I quite like that. Let me read 1 Samuel 22 two again. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round David, and he became their leader. And it's very noticeable, I think, that it doesn't say that these 400 men came to the cave. Famously, men like caves, don't they, and sheds. But there was nothing attractive about the cave in itself. They weren't saying, oh, I go to St. Caves Darlington now, or I go to Cave Christian Fellowship, or Cave Street Evangelical Church. It wasn't the cave. They weren't saying, I just like the dim lighting in this place, you know. I like the outside feel to it. It's actually got toilet facilities literally fit for a king, this cave. It wasn't to do with the cave. It says they gathered around David. They saw his faith. They saw the purity of his heart. They saw his integrity and they said, I want to be with him. I like that. In 1 Chronicles 12, 18, God gives David more men. And the spirit of the Lord, it says, came down on one of them. And he says, we are yours, David. We're with you, son of Jesse. Success, success to you and success to those who help you. For your God will help you. Everything David suffered under Saul was so unfair, it was so cruel, it was so evil. But these men, they watched David under pressure and they saw how he responded. They saw his heart. They saw that God was with him. They couldn't deny it. And it says they gathered to him. Now remember what I said last week about Ern Baxter's prophetic word and Terry Virgo's echoing of it that Saul-type churches with their institutional top-down model would fade as God raised up David-style churches. And so much of that, I think, is to do with people seeing spirit-filled, gracious, godly, visionary leaders whom God is clearly blessing, even though some people might oppose them. People gather around anointed leaders. They always have done. And they've said, they say, I want some of what you've got. 
I'm coming with you. I'm buying into your vision. I'm excited by the promises God is making to you. I'm in. Count me in. And so eventually after Saul dies and David weeps for him and those guys see his magnanimity in 1 Chronicles 11, 1, it says this, all Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, listen to this, we are your own flesh and blood. We just feel joined to you, David. We feel this is family. We feel part of you. You see, it's leadership that is based not on a kind of hierarchy or institutional system, but on affection and on loyalty and on love and on being family together. And it's the same in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 8.5, Paul says, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then they gave themselves by the will of God to us. They gave themselves to that leadership. And of course, it has to be two-way. Otherwise, you've got a cult on your hands. So 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you, talking to a church, because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. So you get this beautiful reciprocal giving to one another. In David-type churches, it's always relational and not institutional. It's not who's got to be the right reverend or who's the very reverend or who's the most reverend. It's not who's top dog. That's not important. It's friendship. It's covenant. It's affection. It's family. It's we are your own flesh and blood. And this is what God has been raising up in the last few generations, I feel. Not Saul-type Christianity with its obsession for self-preservation, but David-type Christianity with a fire in its heart for God's honor. David or Saul is actually a matter of life or death for us. Which path we choose, David or Saul. God is looking for men and women with a worshiping heart like David, not like Saul. Psalm 9, written by David, says, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wondrous deeds. God wants men and women with a heart for worship who are committed to giving the very best to him and exalting his greatness week by week, day by day. Are you going to be one of them? Is that going to be your life? God is looking for men and women with a servant heart like David, not like Saul. Acts 13, 36 says, David served God's purpose in his own generation. God wants servant-hearted men and women who are passionate about the purposes of God in our generation. Are you going to be one of them? God is looking for men and women with a trusting heart like David, not like Saul. David said, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. God wants men and women who will not be moved because their hearts have placed their trust in God's unbreakable, unshakable promises. Are you going to be one of them trusting people? God is looking for men and women with an undivided heart, like David, not like Saul. 
Psalm 86, another David psalm says this, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. God wants men and women whose heart is steadfast, never torn between God and any idol. And God is looking for men and women with a prophetic heart, like David, not like Saul. Acts 2.29 says, David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. God, want, Who wants to hear from God and speak out his word? Does he want that to be you? Well, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. God is looking for men and women with an obedient heart. Acts 13, 22 says this, God testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to. In short, David had a heart for God, and he so wants you and me to have one as well.